everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Princeton Anthropology Professor Lawrence Ralph. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, Lawrence, uh, you have a new book coming out in uh, a few days. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so on February 20th, uh, my book comes out. It's called Sito, an American Teenager in the City That Failed Him. And it's a, a story about a young man who was wrongfully incarcerated at 14 and how that um that time spent in juvenile uh detention really haunted him and could shape the trajectory of his life five years later at the age of 19 uh sito was murdered and uh so the book centers on that five-year period and it's a kind of intimate portrayal of sito's life uh, he was a member of my own family and i try to in addition to thinking about the criminal justice system, uh, think about how families impacted by the criminal justice system grieve and heal from violence. So how did you come about writing this book? You mentioned that he's a member of, of your own family, but um, you know what made you decide to focus on this particular story? Well, I think the moment, looking back uh, on it, I think the moment where I knew that the story needed to be told was when I was at Sito's funeral and his father was making a plea to uh, all the other young people who were in attendance, asking them to turn around, to look at each other, to really see each other, to hug each other, to make a commitment that they would not retaliate. And I thought that that message of how to end a cycle of uh, violence, that message needed to kind of outlive that particular moment of the funeral. And so I was interested in in what Sito's legacy could mean from that from that time on. And then later, I had explicit conversations with his father and his brother about how we could tell Sito's story and and the power of telling the story. And and tell us a bit about Sito. What was he like? What was his life like? Yeah, I think in many ways, his life was extraordinary. And in many ways, his life was typical of what a lot of young people of color go through in urban communities. Uh, I say it's extraordinary because, as I mentioned, at age of the age of fourteen, he was accused of murder. He was accused of murdering one of his former classmates, and he spent um, months inside uh, San Francisco's juvenile hall. And he was kind of the center of uh, media campaigns and the local media talking about uh, that particular crime, and that really colored him as a 
criminal uh, in many people's eyes. And then um, extraordinarily, there was video footage found um, by the public defender's office uh, that he did not commit the murder. And so he was released. He tried to get his life back on track. He actually became an activist and advocated for the closure of youth detention facilities. And um, a short while after his activism began, he was murdered by the little brother of the person he was accused of killing. <laughs> and so uh, there's a way in which that label of murder stayed with him and, and he was killed as a result of that. And those events may seem like really out of the ordinary, but underneath those events, he was someone who was struggling uh, to find his place in the world, struggling to, um, uh, you know, figure out what he wanted to do with his life, uh, whether he wanted to go back to school, whether he wanted to pursue activism. Uh, he was somebody who um, had encountered some hardships with the criminal justice system, but somebody who was also hopeful. And I think that part of what I'm trying to write against is this tendency to have a perfect victim and someone who is just solely innocent and, and act as if we can only feel compassion for that person. I want us to understand that Sito was a complicated person. He, he was a person who uh, participated in uh, youth violence, and he was somebody who had a lot of fights. He was somebody who was suspended from school, ran away from home, uh, but he was also someone who was a loyal friend, a loyal family member, uh, a, a good brother, um, and somebody who was trying to uh, turn his life around when he died. And it seems like this is a really important point because if if you look at history, you know, there are a few saints in this world, maybe, but most of us have our our levels of uh, you know mistakes and missteps along the way. And a lot of times, you know, the people that end up thrust into this kind of limelight that they end up being a tragic victim of something they're they're not perfect uh, and yet you know we we want them to be somehow uh perfect in order for them to be the perfect symbol yeah and i and i think as a public we want them to be perfect even just so we can uh afford our own um sense of uh, compassion it's like you know there's an implicit thing when we when we see headlines of gang violence or something like that where it's easy to just uh, ignore it go about our day and think oh this thing happens all the time um, you know there's a the fatigue that sets in with the headlines and there's an implicit uh, assumption that people put themselves in that position 
or that that's they they suffered as a result of their own actions uh when in fact the story is often more complicated than that and we actually do need to read beyond the headlines and see uh the deeper story and what leads people to be ensnared in these cycles of violence in the first place and and that's what I'm trying to do with this book is trying to untangle that picture and paint a broader picture uh, for people who would ordinarily just skip over this story. So tell us a little bit about your life and how you got here. Yeah, so I've always been interested in in justice and I've always been interested in um, studying uh, mass incarceration and particularly youth incarceration. And uh, I've been interested in that from a scholarly standpoint. And uh, I received my training in anthropology from the University of Chicago. And while I was there, um, I had uh, a lot of moments where I realized that, you know, studying the issue wasn't enough. I think in the first instance, I was um, getting trained in anthropology, but also living on the south side of Chicago at the time and living in a community that was known for gang violence. And uh, I began volunteering in uh, the the world of anti-gang violence and the world of uh, violence prevention. And I encountered a lot of young people who were in wheelchairs who had been shot and disabled. And nobody was talking about the young people in the wheelchairs. And that that struck me that it was something that everybody could see, but people were talking around and, and not talking about how they got there and not talking to them about their life experiences and how their world changed. So I became really interested in, in that aspect of it, how people live with violence, how people live through violence, how people overcome it. And uh, that became a, a, a critical component of uh, what I began to study. Later on, I began to study police violence in a police scandal that took place in Chicago where hundreds of uh, Black men were tortured in police custody. And there, from that research, I kind of learned the interworkings of the criminal justice system and how the district attorneys and the police forces work together um, to uh, sometimes uh, mishandle cases. And that results in injustice. And so when I decided to work on the CETO project, I I saw all of that uh, insight coming to a head where CETO was involved in the system. Uh, I looked, I, I, it seemed to me that the police and the district attorney initially mishandled this case. And uh, it result, had long-term consequences for him. And so I think my prior research, uh, but also my prior commitments uh, kind of put me in a position to be able to tell this story. Why did you choose anthropology as your vehicle to kind of address some of these serious societal problems? 
I think what drew me to anthropology was that uh, anthropologists often spend a lot of time with people. Uh, we kind of get to know their perspective. We try to present the world from their their worldview, and we kind of suspend our judgment about what we think is right and wrong in order to shed light on how they perceive the world uh, with a, with an idea that if we look at how marginalized people, marginalized groups perceive the world, that can, can complicate the things that we take for granted in society, particularly in this case around law and order and around youth and crime. And so uh, the long-term commitment to seeing the world through other people's eyes is what kind of drew me to anthropologists and to anthropology. And that's, that's what I like most about being an anthropologist. And you talk about how victims' families in the criminal legal system are kind of disregarded. In what way are they disregarded? And how, do, how should we think about what justice looks like for them? Yeah, I think part of the way that they're disregarded is that what they want doesn't is not necessarily taken into account. It's only taken into account if it furthers what um, district attorneys want to do anyway, right? And so I think in this case, uh, Sito ended up being an activist and not believing in uh, prisons and not believing in incarceration. And so more than wanting his killer to um, be locked up forever, a lot of his family members wanted just an acknowledgement of the way that he had been wronged in the past and the way that um, not exonerating him for murder at 14 uh, affected his life. Uh, they wanted kind of recognition for how um, the legal system was complicit in the murder that took place. And there was kind of no mechanism for that. There's no way that they could get what they wanted in that situation. And so what ended up happening was a lot of their concerns were just ignored and fell by the wayside. Um, Another way that they're ignored in terms of family is that there's no infrastructure really for, for healing, for providing resources uh, for which they can kind of process grief, process their own trauma as a result of these cases, as a result of the trials, as a result of having to go to court, as a result of uh, encountering the headlines about the cases. And so there's a lack of resources when it comes to families uh, in a way that they can manage their grief um, in a productive way. And that's concerning because, again, in Sito's case, it was the little brother of the person he was accused of killing. Uh, and so he was part of a family who once didn't get the sufficient support 
and ended up reproducing a cycle of violence. And so we we really need to be attuned to the ways in which the lack of resources for families can perpetuate violence at the end of the day. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because one of the things that jumps out to me often in these wrongful conviction cases is that, you know, when you look at, at these cases, it becomes very clear um, that, you know, the wrong person wa was uh, incarcerated, and yet often the victim's families remain in denial about that, that they hold on to those views. So was this a case where the family didn't accept the fact that Sita was wrongly convicted or um, was it something else? Yeah, I mean, I think what exacerbated that feeling for them was that no one else was ever arrested for the murder. So it was a it was a case that and I think there was a sense that Sito had been the only one associated with it um, officially, and then no one else was arrested, so there was no justice, you know? And I think when there's the sense that there's no justice in the case, that opens the door for people to try to seek justice on their own terms. And I think that's what happened in this case. Um, and I want to uh, go back. Uh, you had mentioned uh, some of your previous work on um, the Chicago torture cases. And it's really interesting because, and I live on the West Coast, but I pay pretty close attention. And it wasn't really until the last maybe four or five years that I became aware um, of the extent to which um, John Berg uh, had been involved in torture for about 20 years or so in Chicago. And since then, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have worked on this stuff. Um, you know, you mentioned you grew up in Chicago. What, uh, what was kind of the, the word on the street as you were growing up um, during this time? Yeah, well, I actually didn't grow up in Chicago. I came there for when I was uh, basically for for school, for college. And I first heard of John Burge when, uh, when I, in the context of doing gang research. And at the time, this was before like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and this was a time where there was uh, still police killings happening where the police would shoot somebody who was running away from them. And in one case that I remember vividly, uh, the police had shot a young man and it had been caught on tape. And people were saying, well, if nothing happened to John Burge, then nothing's gonna happen to these officers. And so, after that, it clicked, and I kept hearing people saying, well, of course, like, look what John Burge did, and then that's when I kind of dived into the history and uh, realized how common it was for people to associate Burge with the miscarriage of justice, and it was basically an open secret that the police did 
you know, torture people behind closed doors and that nothing was going to happen to them, even though they did these things. And so I think, you know, doing my research after that uh, fact, I learned that this had been going on since at least the 70s. And, um, and it had been a long struggle since then. You know, at first people, not only did they not believe uh, the people who came forward and said that they had been tortured, um, you know, at that time, there wasn't even a consensus around things like post-traumatic stress or anything like that. Like, some judges didn't even believe that existed at the time. And so there was a different standard for how we think about these issues. Uh, but I think what I got from that most is that, you know, it's not enough to know something is happening. You also have to believe that there's a system of accountability in place for when it happens. And, and, when we think about justice and injustice, a lot of it hinges on accountability. A lot of it hinges on whether you believe that people will face consequences for what they did, or that there is a possibility um, that they'll be discouraged from doing it again. And if you don't believe that there'll be consequences or there'll be any mechanism to discourage people from doing it again, then you often have an outlook that it's it's just a a, a world of uh, that's not fair, that's unjust. Well, I view it slightly differently, and I remember, for example, you know when Rodney King got beaten in L.A. and it got caught on tape, and that was like an eye-opening experience for a lot of white people in this country because before that you know I think a lot of people just believe that oh okay there are all these stories out there about cops beating black people but I, I don't think they actually believe that that was happening um, certainly not to the extent it actually is and so you know once the Rodney King um event got captured on tape all of a sudden all these people were like oh okay i guess uh i i, I guess they weren't kidding um and you know what what really is mind-boggling if you you know read some of these accounts of what happened in chicago is that this isn't like you know a, a couple of cops, you know, who, um, oh, okay, they got a little carried away and, or they may be in the heat of the moment, uh, shot somebody um, that wasn't justified. This is like intentional long-term inflicting of torture and believing, as you said, um, that they were gonna get away with it. And, and, and Burge pretty much did until almost the end of his life. like. I mean, um, if you uh, read some of the accounts of how long it took for them to actually uh, get him, I mean, you know, it took almost 20 years for him to, uh, to pay any price other than getting fired, which is, you know, kind of almost a slap on the wrist when you get fired and you, you still get your pension and you get to live in, uh, you know, relative luxury. I, I mean, it's mind-boggling, I, I guess, is, is, is my point. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's definitely that aspect of it. And we saw that that aspect of it, I think, with the George Floyd as well, you know, where, um, you know, it was during COVID. There, there was people had attention, you know, to current events in a way that they probably normally don't. And we saw the video of this, uh, this brutal event. And I think it was a similar kind of awakening where, you know, people realize, wow, you know, this is happening and it's real and it's not exaggerated and something needs to be done. So there are some moments that kind of crystallize it and, and that's the hope. And I, and I think about that often when we, because there's a balance between the fatigue that sets in when we see viral videos all the time of horrific events and the fact that for somebody it's going to be their first time seeing that you know what I mean so there's a certain degree in which that needs to be shown and needs to be seen and it needs to be grappled with because we never know for whom that is going to be uh the difference in you know that's going to galvanize a public around an event that they never seen in quite the same way. Uh, so I think it's important to to talk about all these cases when they come up. And in the Chicago case, it was important to keep talking about it in different historical moments because part of what happened is that the way there's a correlation between the way in which um, torture was happening uh, abroad and the way in which these cases were keep came coming up in Chicago. And so there are particular moments like, um, you know, after 9-11, when we're focused on torture and we're, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking through like the Patriot Act and waterboarding and all these things where these cases became relevant again. And after Abu Ghraib, where these cases became relevant again. And, you know, when we're talking about Guantanamo and these cases become relevant again, and, and people are saying, well, this is the exact same thing that Birch did in Chicago, right? Why do we see it as torture in Abu Ghraib, but we don't in Chicago, right? And so it's important to keep having these conversations because we don't know when uh, the public awareness is going to catch up to what we already know. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I actually had Flint Taylor, who's one of the uh, attorneys that worked on this case on this show, and you know, he was pointing out that you know, at the very same time that the Abu Ghraib uh, stuff was coming out of Iraq. Um, that they're like fighting to get this stuff out in Chicago. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like I, I pay pretty close attention to this stuff and I can tell you all about Abu Ghraib as it was happening, but I couldn't tell you anything about what was happening in Chicago. So 
Um, it, it is an interesting facet. I, I did want to uh, go back to a point that you made early in our conversation here, because uh, you know one of the things that's really interesting. You mentioned you know that that Sito had his own uh, you know issues in life, and of course you know Rodney King had his own issues in his life, and George Floyd had his own issues in his life, and. A lot of the Burge um, victims had their own issues in their life, and none of them were, you know, perfect citizens. And one of the the recourses always is to say, oh, you know, these guys are high, or they're drunk, or they're acting belligerently, and so they get what they deserve. And and that is the the defense of this utter abuse of power that that continues going over time is that these guys are picking on people that are vulnerable uh, intentionally that, that they can get away with this stuff on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that it, it really puts us in a double bind because we have to think really carefully about this, this idea of guilt and innocence. And I think, you know, in American society, we we spend a lot of time thinking about innocence and putting a lot of weight behind innocence. And we're fascinated with stories of people who were wrongfully accused of crimes. Uh, but I think that can, you know, inadvertently be detrimental because like we spend so much time thinking about, okay, this person was locked up for 20 years and they didn't even do it. And we feel sorry for them because they suffered. Uh, but ultimately a lawyer came along and, you know, was able to find evidence and was able to get them out. And we think on the one hand, it was a shame, but, you know, they worked within the system and the system ultimately worked or something like that. But, you know, what about all the cases where the system fails? And and what if, let's say, George Floyd actually did present a counterfeit bill or actually did, um, you know, harass a police officer? Are we saying that if he was guilty in some way that he deserved it? You know what I mean? And so I think the the trope of innocence hurts us in a couple ways one it 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 blinds us from seeing that even if you're guilty the excessive force is still immoral and in you know even if you did a crime does that mean you deserve to get tortured by john burge you know no that's what we have due process for right and so i think we have to look beyond this idea of innocence. And that's why it's really important to be um, really honest about the struggles that people face in their lives, you know? Well, we're just about out of time, but what's next on your agenda in terms of your quest for justice? What are you working on now? Well, I like talking to different audiences and I like, um, you know, grappling with people where they are. And so uh, part of what I did before is I, I created an animated film 
on the torture cases to try to, you know, grapple with the younger generation and, and try to wrestle with the problem of how do we teach this history to people who are in middle school and high school. And I did that through animation and I found that really effective in engaging with audiences. And so right now I'm working on a graphic novel on police violence more broadly um, for that uh, middle school, high school age, and just to kind of meet them where they are and try to get some of the major issues about public safety that we're, we're having this national debate on a larger scale, but the people most impacted by it aren't necessarily in the conversation. So I wanna get that conversation going with young people who live in communities that are over-policed. And uh, I see the graphic novel as a vehicle to do that. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on here and uh, sharing uh, your story and uh, your work on CEDO. Um, the book comes out on February 20th, which is probably right around the time that uh, this podcast is going to drop. Uh, so people, I assume, can get it at uh, Amazon or wherever they get books. Yeah, wherever you get books, you can get it. So. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Lawrence Ralph. He's an uh, anthropology professor at Princeton, and his book, CEDO, An American Teenager in the City That Failed Him, comes out on February 20th. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lawrence. Hey, Great thanks. talking with you. Yeah, great conversation. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>